0: This message is a recording from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. Well, good evening, Kaleo. My name is Erin Dooley. My pronouns are she, her. And uh, before we begin, I'd like to open up with a land acknowledgement to honor the Native people that existed here before us. So tonight we honor the First Peoples of current day downtown Phoenix, the Thawnaw Otham Nation. In the words of Lisa Sharon Harper, they were and are here. We see you, we honor you, and we thank you for laying foundations of harmony, balance, truth, and honor. Thank you for stewarding the land where Creator settled your people. We bless you. We bless your elders, past, present, And emerging. I want to start off doing something a little different. I want to list a series of true facts, and then I want you to tell me is it the NBA or the NFL? Okay, these facts are a little heavy, so be prepared, but again, I'm going to spout some truths. You tell me is it the NBA or the NFL? 36 have been accused of spousal abuse. Seven have been arrested for fraud. 19 have been accused of writing bad checks. 117 have directly or indirectly bankrupted two businesses. I'm going to say that one again. 117 have directly or indirectly bankrupted two businesses. Three have done time for assault. 71 cannot get a credit card due to their bad credit. 14 have been arrested on drug-related charges. 8 have been arrested for shoplifting. 21 currently are defendants in lawsuits. And 84 have been arrested for drunk driving in the last year. Okay, so how many of you think the NBA How many of you think the NFL? Well, the answer is neither. It's the 435 members of the United States Congress. Let me reread the facts to you just so you didn't miss anything. 36 have been accused of spousal abuse. 7 have been arrested for fraud. 19 have been accused of writing bad checks. 117 have directly or indirectly bankrupted two businesses. Three have done time for assault. 71 can't get a credit card due to their bad credit. 14 have been arrested on drug-related charges. 8 have been arrested for shoplifting. 21 currently are defendants in lawsuits. 84 have been arrested for drunk driving in the last year. That's is our United States Congress. Trying to survive under the rule of corrupt officials is not new. People have had to navigate that for years, including Jesus. The Roman government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive, On every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and cruelty. Remember that even before Jesus was born, Herod the Great had been made client king of Judea in the aftermath of a complex civil war. Jewish independence was still a sacred memory for those living under the Roman government, and Herod became extremely paranoid and utterly ruthless in the pursuit of law and order. He employed secret police and regularly cracked down on the local population to keep the peace. He even had three of his own sons executed. That is the type of political corruption that set the cultural stage for the birth of Jesus. And after Jesus was born, Judea was divided into small regions, and Herod's son, Herod Antipas, ruled over Jesus' home of Galilee until after his death. This small town had regular riots at festivals, small protests, and occasional open revolts. Jesus' decision to walk into the temple of Jerusalem and throw the tables over and declare the temple corrupt was an extremely potent act of rebellion. For the temple, the seat of the high priest was not just the central religious authority, it was the political center of the Jewish world. Like John the Baptist that came before him, Jesus' behavior was said to be too radical for most. Jesus' actions of nonviolent resistance to oppression and corrupt government in Jerusalem looked like political sedition from every angle. To the high priest Caiaphas, Jesus Christ would have been yet another dangerous troublemaker who may have political designs and who is challenging the stability of the realm. Pontius Pilate would ultimately agree to crucify Jesus after the Jews insisted that he was dangerous. So to his contemporaries, Jesus did not seem like the peace keeper most Americans see him as today. Ultimately, his behavior in the temple caused outrage and led to his subsequent arrest and crucifixion. To the people of first century Judea, Jesus Christ was a rebel to the corruption of the Roman government. As Jesus followers, what are we known as in the face of corruption in American government? On this sixth Sunday of tide, we find ourselves in John seventeen one through 11, Jesus is departing his disciples, giving them the task of continuing his work of liberation, continuing his politics of a nonviolent way of resistance to oppression and corrupt government. What Jesus chooses to say in his farewell remarks to his disciples is something I'd like for us to pay attention to. Robert D. Cornwall, an author, theologian, and interfaith leader guides us through this passage. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. With these words, Jesus began what is often called the high priestly prayer. In a few moments, he will leave for the garden where he will be arrested. But first, Jesus prays for himself. He then prays for his disciples And then for everyone who will believe in him through the witness of his disciples. So we pick it up in verse 2 of John 17. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Then Jesus prays for his disciples. And he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them, and they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. And I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. So Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Two words stand out in this prayer. The words in and one, which in Greek are "en." and hen. The word in reminds us that our oneness is rooted in a relationship that begins with Jesus and the Father and then extends outward to include everyone who will believe. The prayer begins in verse 1, where Jesus has prayed for himself that God would glorify him. He has prayed for the disciples asking that they would be one as he and the Father are one. And now Jesus focuses on those who will believe that the father has sent him through the witness of his disciples. Now, Jesus isn't praying that others will come to believe. He's praying for those who will believe and participate in the oneness that Jesus shares with the disciples and the father So in this prayer, Jesus reveals that the witness of the disciples will be enhanced by their oneness as a community. Let me say that again. In this prayer, Jesus reveals that the witness of the disciples will be enhanced by their oneness as a community. Despite many efforts down through the centuries, we've not done a good job as Christians to stay together, mainly because we believe that staying together means uniformity of practice or even uniformity of doctrine. But that is not the goal. The goal is that we might love one another That was the desire in the heart of Jesus as he neared the conclusion of his earthly life. There, as they sat together at the table following their final meal, as he prepared for what was to come, he prayed for his followers asking that they would stay together so that they might glorify God. Last week, we flew in on Sunday morning from Iowa, Um, And as we took a road trip to St. Louis to celebrate Kendall's graduation, he spent four long years getting his master's in missional theology. And we are very proud of him. And one of Kendall's favorite things to do with family is to watch or show a movie or something together. Because there's something about the storytelling, the reflection, the opinion, the discussion together. Now, if you ask me, I think sometimes he talks a little too much while we watch stuff. But nevertheless, on the last night of our trip with his family, we started the new Ed Sheeran documentary on Disney Plus called The Sum of It All. Now, this documentary is interesting because it's not a documentary on a musician. It's actually a documentary on grief. And the film showcases how Ed Sheeran mourns the death of his best friend, and he supports his wife as she battles cancer while also being pregnant, and somehow still records his new album. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Ed Sheeran. Like, I know he has a a few great songs out there, and I support it, but I'm not one of them people that's going to get hype over him. And because that's how I feel about him, watching this story and this documentary made me lean in a bit further and become a little bit more interested because I enjoyed seeing him be human. I enjoyed seeing him enjoy his life, love his wife, care for his kids, love his friends, and just be human. Whether we realize it or not, all of our life's goal is to be human, to live, to exist, to be seen and to see, to be known and to know, to be loved and to love. Now, spoiler alert on the, on the documentary, okay? What stood out to me and Kendall as we watched this story Was his wife's response to finding out she had cancer while being pregnant. The moment she received the diagnosis, she said that she was faced with the reality of just how mortal she was. And the only thing she thought about was living and being with the people that she loved. It no longer mattered how many awards her husband had, how much money they made, how big their house was, or what kind of car they drove. Nothing else mattered except to live. And even in my own life, I often reflect on how America teaches us that the only pathway to being human is through things like generational wealth, becoming debt-free, having a house, having a family, being married, having a degree, and whatever else they market to us so that we might sign up as lifelong workers to help pay for this country's endless amount of debt. And I sometimes feel that the only way to live as a human is to do these things first. But I wonder what it would feel like to just focus on being human now. What if my goal now was simply to exist, to wake up, and to breathe (sighs) to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. What if I chose an alternative pathway to being human instead of the one America wants me to choose? And what if I then concern myself with making sure the person next to me also has an opportunity to be fully human, to wake up and to breathe, to love and to be loved, to know and to be known, to live and to exist. When we are faced with our mortality, we remember the value of our lives, And we remember the gift of having one another in community. And in the same way, I think that is what Jesus was praying for his disciples. And that is what he wanted them to remember when he left. That when the government is still corrupt and you have near-death experiences, And you have to choose between gas and groceries sometimes. And mass shootings keep breaking out. And the country is on the verge of another civil war. And fascism is on the rise. And you struggle to impart faith into your children or those who look up to you in a world that gives you so many reasons to give up your faith. And everything feels like it's crumbling around you. Remember that you still have your life. And you still have each other. And together, you still have the ability to put one foot in front of the other and nonviolently resist oppression and corrupt government. I want to do something a little different now. And give us the opportunity to embody this story where Jesus is praying for his disciples. And I want us to take the next 10 minutes and pray for one another. There'll be a timer on the screen. We'll have some music playing in the background. But just take a moment to find out the needs of your neighbor. And if you feel comfortable, pray with them. And if you don't feel comfortable, you can pray alone by yourself But I would encourage you to pray with your neighbor, and we will be back in 10 minutes. As the band comes up, and as we conclude, I want to read to you an excerpt from The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Brazilian educator Paulo Frari. He said, It is only the oppressed who, by freeing themselves, can free their oppressors. The latter, as an oppressive class, can free neither others nor themselves. It is therefore essential that the oppressed wage the struggle to resolve the contradiction in which they are caught. And the contradiction will be resolved by the appearance of the new man, neither oppressor nor oppressed, but man in the process of liberation. Now, I wrote my own simplified version of what he said, and it reads this. Only those who suffocate under the chokehold of white supremacy can free themselves from it and tell those doing the choking that they don't got to choke no more. In America's origin story, white supremacy is the father of our oppression. It is the belief that white people constitute a superior race and should therefore dominate society, typically to the exclusion or detriment of other racial and ethnic groups. Those who uphold white supremacy and assimilate to it cannot free themselves or others. Therefore, it is essential that we who once suffocated under its chokehold engage in the struggle for liberation, which can only be resolved by the appearance of a new people, a new community, a people who no longer identify as oppressed or oppressor, but liberated and free may we always remember that we still have our lives we still have each other and therefore we still have the opportunity to nonviolently resist white supremacy in all spaces and all places in every encounter at every turn in every conversation We will no longer suffocate under its chokehold and we will no longer allow it to choke and suffocate others, which means we will follow Jesus and we will follow his example of nonviolent resistance to oppressive government and rule, which means we nonviolently resist anything that is not love for that is the birthplace of liberation love a wide welcoming embrace of God's acceptance and identity of belonging as Jesus prayed for his disciples so he still yet prays for us that we would love one another And in our full humanity, stick together because we still have each other. Let's have a moment of silence and reflection. For more information about Kaleo, visit KaleoPHX.com or follow us on social media at KaleoPHX.